Hello, everybody. Welcome to Still's Disease Highlights. So we are presenting selected abstracts from EULA 2021 meeting, um, which we find pretty interesting uh, for this topic. So this presentation is sponsored by Novartis Medical Affairs. Uh, Novartis gave us the topic of interest, which is a childhood and adult onset Still's disease. But within the topic of interest, abstracts were independently selected by the speakers, which is us, uh, without any influence from Novartis. And the intention of this discussion is to provide a succinct summary of the key data presented at the EULA 2021 conference. And the views are presented <clears throat> here are those of the speakers. So let me introduce myself. I'm Bella Mehta. I am a rheumatologist in New York, uh, and I work for a hospital for special surgery. and. Um, Stills disease is a special interest of mine, and I have no disclosures except for being a consultant at Novartis. My name is Apostolos Kozgis. Um, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Medicine at Stony Brook University. And um, I'm also running the Fellowship uh, Rheumatology Program in the Division of Rheumatology, Allergy, and Immunology. Um, and I have the um, uh, privilege to uh, act as a vice director of the Auto-Inflammatory Clinic uh, here uh, at Stony Brook, and uh, uh, certainly still disease is uh, one of my favorite uh, conditions to diagnose and treat among our patients. So let's go on to the first abstract. Um, adult onset still disease, a single center experience. Um, I think it's a very good abstract talking about how patients present with still disease and um, present in terms of um, the signs, symptoms, as well as labs. Uh, so these were 69 patients uh, who fulfilled the Yamaguchi criteria for Stills disease, uh, for adult onset Stills disease. And um, they were over a 13 year period from 2007 to 2020. Um, the mean corticosteroid dose that were given a diagnosis was around 30 milligrams, uh, with, uh, which is the mean uh, steroid dose uh, with a standard deviation of around 18 milligrams. So, quite a range there. And uh, here you see uh, the presenting symptoms, uh, signs of uh, patients. Uh, most of them had fever around 65%. Um, some of them had rash and arthralgias, which were the top three things um, in their presentation. Uh, arthritis uh, in a few of them and a sore throat. Um, again, uh, this, this table gives you a wide spectrum of uh, presenting signs, which is important because still disease patients can present in a lot of different ways. Um, also, methotrexate was the preferred treatment option with the mean doses around 14.5, uh, which I think is uh, on the ballpark of what we give uh, some of these patients. Um, and in patients who are unresponsive to uh, the traditional DMARDs, biologic agents were used as an alternative uh, here. Um, and as you can see, uh, anapkinra was prescribed in 19 patients, followed by leflunomide, anti-TNFs, uh, tocilizumab, and phenakinumab. Um, and again, I, I think even in our clinical practice, uh, corticosteroids is generally something that people first give while they're trying to work up, um, you know, if there's other causes, if there's any infections, if there's any malignancies, because those are the things people usually think about in uh, patients who present like this. Uh, some of them even present as fever of unknown origin and then when you have a better history and you take a look at the patient you get a better sense of it 
Um, again, here you can see uh, the ferritin is pretty high, around 3,000, uh, 3,200 mean. Um, the SED rate is high, uh, the CRP is high. So these are highly inflammatory patients. Um, again, um, one of the points that I always try to make is that even though the ferritin is high in this uh, population, and that's the traditional teaching, here you can see that the standard deviation is also very, very high. So um, there could be a range of ferritin um, that these patients present with. Um, and uh, this is what this abstract mainly talks about, uh, how these people present, what are they giving? And again, um, this is a study uh, from a region, uh, so cannot be extrapolated all over the world, but uh, still some, some good insights here. Um, uh, Apostolos, what do you think about the ferritin here? Uh, you know, is that something that you see in your practice too? Like uh, sometimes the ferritins may misguide you, may not be that high. Absolutely, absolutely. Let's not, let's not forget that um, uh, adult onset still exists as a diagnosis of exclusion. Um, uh, as uh, and as you very well pointed out, they may present as a fever of unknown origin. Definitely, we do we do use ferritin. Uh, um, as, as a marker, let's uh, uh, not forget it's not including to the Yamaguchi's criteria, um, uh, but um, it can be seen in different settings, but in, in, in a patient with a high suspicion, uh, uh, ferritin levels of at least uh, times five of the upper normal range definitely is a red flag uh, if the clinical picture is, is consistent with uh, uh, adult onset stills. And in this study, we, I think it, it reflects uh, real-world practice in the sense that uh, um, in, in terms of the prevalence of, of systemic manifestations, um, uh, fever, rash, uh, uh, joint uh, involvement. Uh, clinically speaking, I have to admit, rash sometimes may not be uh, uh, present. I mean, traditionally, it's been, it has been described as evanescent, right? Um, uh, meaning coming and going classically at, at the height of the peak of the fever. Um, uh, but oftentimes, uh, either because of um, uh, um, uh, uh, skin texture and so on and so forth, uh, uh, it, it may not be that evident. So uh, uh, that's exactly why uh, other signs and symptoms are, are uh, definitely necessary, especially for patients who present as uh, fever of unknown origin, that they may require um, uh, uh, a more elaborate uh, uh, workup in a high suspicion. Um, let's not forget early uh, um, diagnosis uh, uh, has the potential to prevent uh, patients from further complications. So I think this study is, is really capturing all the uh, phenotypic expression of, uh, of adult onset still disease in, 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 in real uh, world practice. True, true. And I think uh, it's also important for some of our colleagues um, uh, who refer these patients to refer them early, because by the time sometimes patients go from dermatology to infectious disease to oncology, it, it it takes a lot more time for them to come to rheumatology. Uh, so the right referral patterns are also something to be emphasized. Um, of course, absolutely. We do rely on, on other specialties of opinions. And, um, uh, and as often said, uh, it's, uh, uh, medicine is a team sport nowadays. And, and that's, that's more than evident in you know, very sick uh, 
undiagnosed, complicated patients are as, as, as Stills disease patients are often um, uh, uh, been described in a, uh, early on in their uh, disease journey. Let's move on to the next one because I think it's very interesting. Um, this is an abstract uh, discussing biologic treatment options in adult onset Stills disease from a single center. Um, again, it's a small study of 28 patients who fulfilled the Yamaguchi criteria. Uh, and again, over many years, uh, over a decade, um, and all patients were treated with corticosteroids. Again, uh, the mean dose of corticosteroids is pretty high, around 35. Um, and most of them did get a traditional DMARD. Um, 22 of them uh, of the 28 got methotrexate, one with isothioprine, two got cyclosporin, and one got IVIG. This is again a female predominant uh, uh, cohort. 21 were females and seven were males. Um, and again, here you see that fever and salmon-colored rash were the most common presenting symptoms of patients with Stills disease. Um, this is a group, or this is a study from Turkey, um, and they're describing the salmon-colored rash, but um, I would say that in my practice, the salmon-colored rash sometimes can misguide you in, in the sense that um, not every patient would have the rash. You have to really look for it. And in different um, diversity populations, it can look different. So salmon-colored rash is much easier to see in somebody um, who's Caucasian versus somebody who's African-American. And again, um, these are the patients who take a much longer time to be referred. So uh, something that you, I, I keep reiterating, um, saying that you need to look, you need to know what you're looking for. The next sort of uh, few things that they uh, present with is lymphadenopathy, sore throat or pharyngitis, serositis, and macrophage activation syndrome. Again, which is something that is a rare, but life-threatening complication, complication in Stills disease. Um, Coming back, um, they they did uh, give a lot of these patients uh, biologics once they uh, failed uh, traditional DMARDs. Uh, and the biologic DMARDs were initiated for systemic symptoms in 80% of the patients um, and for chronic arthritis in 20% of the patients. Um, uh, again, loss of efficacy was the prominent reason for switching treatments because if something's not working, you tend to switch it. Um, and biologics were terminated in two patients due to complete remission, um, but three patients due to side effects, one with pneumonia, one with Hodgkin's lymphoma, and one with TB. So again, um, you know, TB screening is something that is emphasized all over, um, uh, but uh, keep in mind that lymphoma and malignancies uh, is something that you do want to watch out for in these patients because some of the presentation, uh, some of the presenting signs and symptoms may overlap uh, and uh, looking out for them and screening when appropriate is something that you need to do. Um, but one of the biggest point that I would say is after the initiation of biologic DMARDs, um, you know, not only that the inflammatory markers, ESR, CRP, uh, ferritin decrease, uh, but the daily steroid dose decrease, uh, the mean was 35, uh, at the beginning uh, at, and at the last visit after the initiation of biologics, it is um, around 5.6. Uh, 
again like apostolus how, how do you feel about the daily steroid dose sometimes it's very difficult for me to get patients off steroids well, that was a, a great finding from from the study i mean this uh third mid 30s uh, range of prednisone use to be down to uh, close to five um five to six milligrams a day in our clinical practice we we uh, encounter that all the time patients with comorbidities diabetes uh, for example um, osteoporosis with fragility fractures, when we do want to um, uh, um, uh, uh, limit the exposure to steroids, um, introduction of, of biologics in, in, the, in the patients uh, that are especially refractory to the uh, uh, first line uh, or conventional uh, DMARs that we use for stills is something, is a strategy that we, uh, we, we try to incorporate uh, sooner than later. I think uh, that was a, uh, a great finding from the study reflective of our uh, clinical real world experience as well. What I did find interesting as well is that two patients um, were uh, discontinued actually the biologic DMARDs uh, due to complete remission. Um, I think this is, a, this is an area that requires uh, uh, um, long-term follow-up in, in the larger cohorts of patients to determine if that's a feasible strategy or not, actually, um, in relation to uh, relapses or sustained remission post-initial uh, uh, treatment with either conventional uh, DMARDs or, uh, or biologic DMARDs. So that's something that needs further study to be confirmed, validated, or disproved at the end of the day. Well, um, I think this was an interesting discussion. Let's get on to the next one. So let's go on to the next one on the same lines. Um, you know, it's always difficult to find the treatment targets sometimes for Stills disease. Um, so this next abstract is Jack inhibitors in refractory adult and childhood onset Stills disease. Um, and again, this is by a group which does a lot of work on Stills disease. Um, and here, I mean, it's a very small study. It has six patients that they retrospectively found um, uh, looking at records uh, from a national survey of departments across rheumatology, pediatric rheumatology, internal medicine. Um, and there were five adults, one child uh, in this study. Um, and the mean age to start treatments was around 39 years or 40 years. Um, and then, you know, the one patient which was the child was six years old um, and um, you know they used standardized questionnaires uh, and uh, you know followed these patients up for one month three months six up six months um, and at least uh, most of the patients had at least a nine month follow-up so again uh, they wanted to know if jack inhibitors are viable treatment options for these patients um, so most patients, I mean, actually, um, most patients got like some other drug before they went on JAK inhibitors and they failed treatment and that's how they got into the study. Uh, and all patients were prescribed uh, steroid treatments with the JAK inhibitors. So these are the six patients and uh, this baseline steroid dose was pretty high in most cases, except for patient one and patient three, where it was three and 16 milligram. And a lot of them uh, were uh, taking uh, methotrexate. Again, uh, all patients presented with fever, polyarthritis, and rash, except for one patient 
who just presented with polyarthralgia instead of polyarthritis. Mean duration of disease was around 5.3 years. So these are patients who who've cycled through a lot of other medications or um, maybe there's a delay in diagnosis too. Um, again, most of the patients, uh, five of them had systemic disease. One had much more of a chronic articular type of disease. Um, so here, uh, at follow-up around 9.5 months, no patients achieved complete remission. So they did not meet, meet the wanted endpoint, if you say. Uh, but I think the, the biggest takeaway that I got from this was um, they, they at least could get down on the steroid rates. Uh, so the steroid requirements did decrease. Um, and some of them did respond partially. This graph also shows, um, you know, especially the prednisone one on the right, um, you see that the prednisone uh, requirements have consistently decreased across all patients, depending, I mean, uh, depending on where they start, um, they do go down, uh, which, which I think is an interesting point to make. With CRP, I think there's so many factors that get into CRP, um, measurements um, that I, I, I'm, I don't bank on, even in my clinical practice, I do measure CRP, but I don't um, sort of bank on that to make major decisions. Is that something that you also do? Oh, I, I agree, Bella. Uh, you know, it, it's not uh, a biomarker that's absolutely, you know, uh, reflective of, of uh, uh, disease activity as it's influenced by other um, factors as well. Um, uh, clearly, uh, exam is, is important. Patient reported outcomes are very important um, when we treat patients um, and certain uh, uh, laboratory parameters such as ferritin at times, you know, especially when the patient presents initially with uh, hyperferritinemia more than times five of the upper normal, traditionally uh, speaking, right? Um, that's something that uh, is, is important to follow to, um, uh, uh, to make sure that they, uh, they remit. But again, um, ferritin levels alone uh, uh, do not speak for remission necessarily, as you, I'm sure, in your practice as well uh, have, have encountered, right? True. I mean, so that, that actually like, you know, still highlights the need for more biomarkers in this disease. Um, maybe, I mean, I know a lot of groups out there are working on it. There was this whole thing about like oscillated ferritin, but again, it's not commercially used as much, but, um, you know, there's more to come with a still disease. Absolutely. So the next abstract that we will be discussing, uh, is, uh, titled pulmonary arterial hypertension in adult onset stillis disease, a case series of 13 patients, um, by Mitrovic, uh, and colleagues. Um, this was um, uh, a um, small study of 13 female patients with systemic onset of adult onset uh, stills disease, um, which were identified through an online call. Uh, 12 patients presented with the polycyclic uh, form of AOSD and one patient um, had the chronic articular course and they all fulfilled um, both uh, uh, the Yamaguchi and the Fotrell. Uh, criteria, and they all had uh, pulmonary arterial hypertension um, uh, as a prerequisite to be included into the study. 
Um, and the main objective was to describe the clinical profile of adult onset stillness patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension and their response uh, to treatments with a median follow-up of about 34 months. Uh, this was an interesting study to me uh, because um, we often overlook the potential, um, at times rare complications of adult onset stills. Um, especially in patients who are not very well uh, controlled. Um, the most common treatments in patients with stills uh, at the time that they were diagnosed with PAH by right heart uh, cath uh, were corticosteroids and interleukin-1 inhibitors. Um, uh, uh, methotrexate was prescribed in uh, three uh, patients and two were on TNF inhibitors. Uh, approximately half uh, of the patients, um, uh, so six of them developed PAH following a stills uh, flare, uh, which argues for a correlation between uh, PAH uh, and stills uh, activity. In all patients were diagnosed with severe uh, PAH through the NIHA uh, function classification. Uh, in fact, at the time of PAH diagnosis, uh, two patients were uh, in NIHA a functional class two, seven patients in class three, and four patients in class four. Um, so they were at the severe end of the spectrum um, uh, for uh, PAH. Um, uh, so the high dose of uh, corticosteroid treatment uh, was kept. Um, uh, being prescribed in most of the stills patients after the diagnosis. And in fact, because PAH is associated with poor prognosis in, in stills patients, um, uh, uh, dual or triple combination uh, therapy uh, was introduced uh, for PAH treatment uh, to include um, uh, uh, vasodilators um, uh, and, and possibly inotropes on top of the uh, uh, steroids. Um, uh, and, uh, and other biologics to include IL-1 blockers and IL-6 uh, blockers as well. So uh, it is important to note that PH is a rare but severe complication uh, in adult onset stills uh, patients as evidenced by the, the study. Uh, um, five patients actually um, died during uh, uh, their, uh, the follow-up um, uh, of the study. And hemodynamic response to pH treatment does not seem to appear to be correlated with uh, prognosis as many of these patients died when hemodynamic profile was stabilized. Uh, so it is important to keep that in mind in our patients among other uh, potentially uh, life-threatening complications such as macrophage activation syndrome. Uh, uh, PAH is also a rare but uh, severe a complication to keep in mind uh, in our patients. So one question though, was this, uh, I mean, do you, do you see, I mean, most of these patients were polycyclic. Do you think that polycyclic patients have more pH? Again, uh, there's not much data out there, but I'm just thinking we see a lot of chronic arthritis variants. That's a very good question, uh, Bella, uh, that you mentioned that. Keep in mind, let's keep in mind that this is a small study, as you mentioned as well, only 13 patients. Um, uh, uh, it appears to be from these small numbers that uh, uh, the systemic uh, polycyclic form 
maybe uh, more associated with PAH uh, as opposed to the chronic articular form, but definitely uh, longer um, uh, follow-up, larger registry uh, studies are, are needed to you know, validate this, uh, this possible uh, correlation as such. But absolutely, this is, a very, um, this is a very good point that you're bringing up. And these are young patients, so sometimes if you're not looking for things, you may not find it, so you need to watch out. Um, absolutely, absolutely. And any patient with increasing shortness of breath uh, who, who has been diagnosed with Stills uh, disease, I mean, I think does warrant a, a more close uh, follow-up and workup, especially in, um, uh, um, along the lines of uh, PAH workup, and we have to collaborate with other disciplines and colleagues of ours, uh, pulmonary and cardiac um, uh, um, uh, colleagues to, to, to work them up as, as necessary and not being dismissive of, of patient symptoms, despite the fact that maybe they, they may be treated uh, for some time where there True. are underlying inflammatory issues. So I always think of stills, um, you know, especially these complications of stills as a, as a team sport. So we as rheumatologists need to work with like our colleagues um, cannot yes. ever underemphasize that because uh, it's tough, right? I mean, when you get into these rare complications, so. I could not agree more. Absolutely, absolutely, Bella. The next abstract uh, uh, is titled, uh, the joint involvement in adult onset stillus disease is characterized by a peculiar magnetic resonance imaging and a specific transcriptomic profile. Uh, conducted by uh, Rusiti and, um, uh, and colleagues. This uh, uh, included uh, 31 patients with adult onset stills uh, who underwent at least uh, 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 one MRI of their joints uh, to be included in, uh, in the study. And the main objective of the study was to describe uh, patterns of joint involvement in stills patients and uh, elucidate uh, pathogenic pathways uh, through transcriptomic analysis of synovial tissue. I think that's, um, that was a very interesting study that captured my attention, given the fact that um, uh, uh, pathogenetic studies, especially at the tissue level for, for stills patients, are not that abundant. I mean, uh, this is probably you know, one of, of the uh, very few, if not the only one out there. Um, and um, uh, synovitis was the most common MRI finding, as, as we can see, uh, mainly localized in, in peripheral joints. Um, in almost all uh, patients, there was bone uh, edema and location of bone erosions were synchronous. Uh, and there was a high prevalence, interestingly, of splenomegaly in patients with bone erosions, which is uh, indicative of, of chronic um, uh, adult onset uh, uh, still disease uh, as well. Um, uh, the majority of patients uh, were uh, middle-aged, I mean age of patients were uh, 42, uh, and 55% of patients were male. Um, so um, uh, uh, peripheral joint involvement uh, with erosion, edema, and synovitis uh, uh, was a pattern that uh, um, uh, the investigators recognized uh, in patients with stills. Uh, and um, uh, what was also interesting is that the MRI pattern that they identified of the affected joints was associated with uh, uh, an upregulated um, uh, transcriptomic uh, uh, signature uh, in still patients at the synovial tissue level. 
um, relative to match controls. And, and the upregulated pathways that they identified belong to um, uh, 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 the classic pro-inflammatory pathways of IL-1, interleukin-1, interleukin-6, and TNF uh, pro-inflammatory pathways, uh, along with uh, some expression of iron uptake genes um, uh, in the uh, uh, still synovial tissues uh, as well. Uh, so uh, this, is, this is the most direct evidence, I think, uh, of, of the uh, uh, pro-inflammatory pathways that we uh, have seen um, uh, implicated in, in, in still pathogenesis. One of the things that, uh, you know, we 